John, the other day I'm on X slash Twitter, uh, skimming through my mentions. I don't re- I don't recommend the activity, but in this case, it was fortuitous. I'm, I notice a, a name that I, I think I recognize, and it was either a reply or a like, probably a reply, probably correcting something you said in the podcast. <laughs> and uh, so I click on the bio, right? Link is in the bio, and I read the following. Emmy Award-winning songwriter, composer, Chicago, Manhattan transfer, Mark Jordan, Jay Graydon. And my first thought is, why is this guy slumming with me on Twitter? Yes, these are a few of my favorite things, for sure. Exactly. So yeah. I'm intrigued. Yeah. But then the name Monkey House right. is also in the bio. And I think most nerds that listen to this podcast would recognize mm-hmm. the name Monkey House by uh, the moniker of Modern Yacht. Yeah. So I've put two and two together, and I realize I am now tweeting with none other than our guest today, Mr. Don Brightup. Don, welcome to Out of the Main. Gentlemen, thank you for having me aboard the yacht. (laughs) (laughs) Ahoy, oh wait, I can't say that. Uh, That ends our, yeah. (laughs) Um, So Don, yeah, lots to unpack, as the kids would say on the line. Um, But I wanted to open with this, because I, I go to the Monkey House website, And I read one other interesting factoid. Mm -hmm. And this is a sort of testimonial, if you will. Um, Monkey House's Don Brightup is one of the very few guys that really gets the melodic pop thing. David Foster, Michael O'Mardian, Randy Goodrum. It's a very special category. Do you know who said that, John? Uh, Jay Graydon. Oh, well done. Did I get it? Yeah, it's Jay Graydon. Yes. Oh. I thought you had done your homework. So, Don, no. that's pretty good company to keep, and that's a pretty good uh, testimonial there. Yeah. Um, I, like you guys, like a lot of uh, musos, uh, have been a Jay Graydon freak for, for years, for decades, you know. Uh, and um, when I was moving to L.A., which would have been, uh, let's see, twenty late 2012, early 2013, somewhere in there, um, my friend, Brian Pearson, who you may know, he's a Indianapolis, Chicago area guy, another uh, rabid muso, uh, n- knows Jay and said, uh, well, you gotta, I gotta hip Jay to you before you move down there. So we sent him at the, what at the time I think was the most recent monkey house album headquarters. And, uh, Jay got back to him and said, who is this guy? This is great. I, I got to write with him. Let me know when he gets to LA. So um, if I wasn't sure that I was going before, I was definitely sure after I heard that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, sh- yeah, I still had back uh, boxes that hadn't been unpacked um, when I called Jay and said, Hey, I, I'm, I'm here in town, Mr. Graydon. What do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stop calling me Mister. What he said. <laughs> make sure you're in phase. Yeah, <laughs> make sure you're in phase. Totally. Um, and you know the the only real caveat with work Jay is 100 approachable, and he's just all about music and chasing the great melody note on the great chord um, or the great groove. You know, uh, but the only thing is that you have to work with him when the rest of the world is asleep. Yeah, we learned that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I hear from people, you know, like Janice Siegel and Mark Jordan and people who should know that that Jay has always worked like that. It mm. was never not like that. 
you know, he, if there was a session with him, it would start at 10 PM and go through the night. And so that's been my experience too. Almost, uh, and I'm an early riser. And so uh, often when I would work with him, you know, I'd get up at 4.30 or something and drive up to the valley and he'd be sort of midway through his his waking hours, you know, and mm-hmm. we'd, we'd right. work at those hours. But the first time I went over to his place, I, it took me a few minutes to for the nerd to wear off. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't want to um, geek out too much, but can can I see the peg guitar? so he went into the guitar room which you can imagine is a a well-stocked room with you know uh two different levels of guitars hung up everywhere and he he got out this this uh, red 335 and brought it in let me hold it by the neck for a minute just so i could say i'd done that yeah he touched it yeah and we got down to writing i mean uh, i guess he and i now I've written maybe about a dozen songs over, over the years. Uh, and that day we got right into it and started uh, working on something that I had kind of a third of the way finished maybe. So we had a starting point. Uh, but the, the, in the early going, the, the little thing that sticks in my mind was I said, uh, I sat down at the grand piano and Jay's beside me uh, on the piano bench with his guitar. And uh, I said, so who else has played this piano? <laughs> and he said, oh, David Foster, Burt Bacharach, Herbie Hancock, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> I said, wow. oh my God. holy shit. I don't know if I should touch it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So uh, a little bit of uh, background. You're sort of leading to my question for the audience. Um, you've got albums under Monkey House listed. Uh, True Winter, 1999. Then there's a long gap, which maybe you'll explain at some point. 2012 had Headquarters. 2016, the album called Left. 2019, an album called Friday. And then 2022 is Remember the Audio. Remember the audio. And my introduction to you or Monkey House was, I think it was Inside Music Cast that described you as um, the closest thing to Steely Dan operating today. Now, the, you mentioned Jay, you mentioned the peg guitar. To what degree is Monkey House an intentional sort of picking up of that mantle? Is it paying homage to it? Or is it just something that has come out of being schooled on Steely Dan and others like that? Yeah, uh, that's that's a well-phrased version of a question I've had a bunch of times. Okay. Um, <laughs> Better uh, than most, I hope. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, when the, the thing is, significantly, you left out the first Monkey House album, which was actually recorded in 92 and came out in 93. Oh, uh, and I was signed by a great uh, old school record man named Keith Brown, uh, who was president of Aquarius Records in Montreal at the time. Uh, they were distributed by EMI, so it was a, like a real record deal, you know. And uh, Aquarius, you might know because that's the label that originally signed people like Sass Jordan, uh, Corey Hart. Uh, April Wine, 
some 41, like a, a bunch of Canadian acts that are sort of, you know, known outside of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we made that first uh, record for them. And really what it was at the time was um, I was working with a studio in Toronto and we were writing and often producing pop songs for people. And I would pitch these songs to these young pop artists and they, they'd be confused by some of the lyrics and definitely confused by some of the chords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so those cassettes or dot tapes, you know, the pile started getting bigger and bigger of the, these songs are too jazzy or quirky or whatever for these pop artists. And finally, uh, Rich Dodson, who I was working with said, you know, maybe that's, maybe you're the artist and you should, and all these songs belong together. And let's think about doing a, a record. And so uh, that, that was the first monkey house album. And it um, now at the time, Steely Dan was inactive, yeah, you know, right. Uh, so into the void went I, uh, mm-hmm. not thinking specifically that I was doing, uh, you know, a tribute or anything, or even, uh, flattering myself to think that I was picking up the mantle, but, uh, certainly it's my favorite music in the world. It w- is now and was then. And I had done a lot of, um, you know, needle dropping as a teenager, trying to decode all those chords and uh, had, you know, done arrangements of their stuff and really dug deep into their catalog to the point where I think I had internalized so much of their way of making music that I wasn't, I didn't have to be intentionally doing it. That's just sort of, those are the ingredients that I was working with in my little songwriting kitchen, you know, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could also talk about Paul Simon and maybe James Taylor and a few other people that are sort of obvious, uh, obviously monkey house adjacent. But, of course, the Steely Dan thing is the the one that comes up the most. Um, And, you know, when the first um, monkey house album came out, the radio stations up here were getting phone calls saying, uh, uh, can you tell me the name of this new Steely Dan record? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So anyway, uh, I, I, I certainly don't uh, bristle uh, at the idea. Uh, it's, it's fine with me. I mean, I think that um, those, those ingredients, that kind of groove construction and jazz chords and kind of literary lyrical perspective, I think more than one person is allowed to do that. Bingo. Well, I think you still hear it in 2019 on Friday. I was listening uh, a couple weeks ago, and I had to write the note, this is Echoes of Steely Dan. And John, why don't you play a little a bit of uh, Island Off the Coast of America. Walking wounded on Baker Street, the rhythm pulls them in. So I'm hearing some strong Steely Dan vibes on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Well, as soon as your drummer's doing the pretty shuffle, you're you're, <laughs> you're a couple of paces towards Steely Dan anyway, because right. you know no you, going back. That's right. Yeah, like people start to hear Babylon Sisters and Home yeah. at Last, you know, yeah. automatically. Um, but that that track was one of my 
several kind of odes to New York City that have been on various uh, Monkey House albums. And the trumpet soloist is actually Mike Lenhart. Oh, wow. Yeah. On that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. which maybe adds a little bit of uh, authenticity to the Manhattan thing. Yeah. And connects to uh, certainly Fagan because he produced that solo album, Sunken Condos. I think Michael produced that, right? That's right. I, um, you know, and I, I work with Mike now and then. Uh, we, you know, my brother and I put on shows at Joe's Pub in, in New York. And Michael is often in the house band when we do those things. And um, at one of them, what year would it have been? 2012, something like that. Uh, we were at rehearsal at Joe's Pub, and uh, Michael brought his phone over and gave me the earbuds and said, "Listen to this." And it was a uh, it was a mix of um, uh, track off uh, Sunken Condos. It might be the good stuff, something like that. And and he said, "There, you just heard a Donald Fagan mix that nobody's heard yet. No one's ever heard." Oh, cool. <laughs> On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. So what does a, um, a recording session for Monkey House look like? Is it banned in a room? Is it assembled track at a time? Is it remote? How do you guys work? Well, it's always uh, rhythm section in the room at the same okay. time. Yeah. So it's it's bass, drums, guitar, and me playing either piano or Rhodes or Whirly once in a while uh, off the floor. And then there's a bit of curation after that as to what the best uh, complete take or combination of uh, chunks of takes is. And once that's assembled, I'll, uh, it's time for uh, lead vocals and background vocals. And then usually horns, which is also live off the floor, is kind of the last element. And then, you know, we... We'll go out sometime. You know, Randy Brecker was on the last album. I didn't go to Randy's house to do that. He just recorded it at home and okay. and sent it in. And uh, you know, Drewsing now plays guitar on every album, and uh, he does his tracks in San Francisco and and sends them up to me. But uh, yeah, I mean, seventy five to eighty five percent of what you're hearing on a Monkey House album is is very much old world recorded in a big room with a bunch of microphones and headphones and hmm. yeah <laughs> as it should be yeah nice no offense to the august reds of the world uh who don't yeah. do it that way <laughs> yeah right well, you know what it's and i don't mean to be snobby about it because it's not that uh you know both my kids are in the music business now and they've got a record deal and a publishing deal and they're they do things a different way and there's more than one way to skin a cat but certainly all the music that i love down to my bone marrow was all done with everybody in a room together. So I like doing it that way. Speaking of which, maybe um, I could give you more than 160 characters to unpack some of these connections that aren't fully explained in the Twitter bio, but tell us about the connections to, uh, I'm particularly interested in Chicago, Manhattan transfer, 
Mark Jordan. So however you want to take that. Okay. Um, well, the Chicago thing, I have a band called a horn band called brass transit and basically started as a labor of love around. I'm thinking it was about Oh seven. And uh, we just got a bunch of like-minded musicians together and said, why don't we just play the Chicago stuff? Cause we all love it. And we thought it might be a thing that would, you know, play a bar once a month and we'd have a good time, you know, and get the, get the goosebumps going as we made a, a classic noise. Um, but the thing is with Chicago is because they've got like 30 hits. Uh, <laughs> the band sounded good almost immediately. We were super tight and it turned out to be really easy to book. And we got an agent in New Jersey and we just started playing all over the place. And our singer at the time was a guy named Neil Donnell, who was kind of a first call male vocalist in Toronto for years. And um, Chicago, after a few years, got wind of him and unbeknownst to us, sent out a, a scout to a couple of our gigs to watch him. And uh, Neil is now the, the lead singer of Chicago. He got the gig. Um, Amazing. Yeah. So that you know, that's the sort of organic connection. So Neil and I, when Chicago did their second Christmas album a couple of years ago, wrote a song for them, uh, which turned out to be the single from that album. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, I've since, you know, met and hung with Robert Lamb and now we're talking about doing some writing. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little surreal for me. That could be a good fit. I could see that. Um, and real quick before I hand it off to John, uh, I guess, Mark Jordan. Yeah. Well, Mark, I mean, if you're a musician, uh, in Toronto and you hang in there long enough and you don't suck and you don't piss everybody off, you're going to meet Mark at some point. But, um, for me, I his piano player, a guy named Dave Restivo, uh, took off to do graduate school in the Maritimes sometime back in the aughts, and I took his piano chair with Mark, so started doing live gigs with him, and it wasn't too long after that we started writing together, and um, we we got a song that's that's current right now, so we've been you know writing all that time. Uh, and some things have ended up things that he recorded and some things have ended up as monkey house songs and a couple other things, uh, were things that got shopped around by his publisher. In fact, we have a song on hold with, uh, George Benson right now. Mm. So who knows? Wow. very cool that that might happen. It might not, but anyway, yeah. So, um, oddly the, the song I'm talking about, the one that's on hold with Benson was going to be on that album. But he, I and I was also going to be on my Monkey House record, but both of us didn't record it just in case George was going to. Uh, but I think Mark is uh, going to record it eventually, as it maybe just as a standalone single. Not sure, but yeah. And then uh, Manhattan Transfer um, that that was also sort of organic. My brother, who lives in New York, uh, knew Janice Siegel and got her involved. Um, in some of our live shows. And uh, when I moved out to LA, Janice said, Oh, you gotta, you gotta meet Alan, Alan Paul, uh, 
who lives out there and um when they were planning their album called the junction uh alan and i started um you know just messing around with some grooves and stuff and we wrote one of these really rapid fire uh things that are hard to memorize and it that was on that again i think that's a track two it was track two on that record but for years i think even now they're they're opening with it when they play live so wow cool yeah well i was going to sort of move us into the uh, a little bit of the writing of what you have done and uh, i took this from wikipedia it points out that you've written books uh, one called precious and few which is pop music in the early 70s and night moves pop music in the late 70s we get the uh, we detroiters get the night moves reference oh hell yeah um and then you've got writings about steely dan you've written for uh the library of congress and you sent us this one writing that you did about queen's uh bohemian rhapsody which that that write-up is absolutely fascinating i i I, I wish there, I don't know if there's a way that we can post or link that out for people to read, but it touched upon um, a thing that we've talked about a lot, Tom, either off air or maybe even on air. And maybe you can address this, uh, Don, um, that you talk through this period when Queen was doing this and the creativity that was bursting forth and how they were able to sort of capture what was happening new with technology as technology was beginning to explode in the recording studio. And we've talked about how I had this theory or observation that you can look at the most creative period in popular music history. And if you were to draw that on a graph and you are also to draw on a graph the growth of technology in the studio, whether it be the ability to record on more tracks or more rack gear, more compressors, more reverbs, more tracks, um, new synthesizers, new sampling technology. As that stuff grew, you could see the creativity grow as people grabbed onto these new things. And as it sort of leveled off, and I feel it kind of leveled off a bit in the late 80s in terms of how quick everything was growing technologically, I think we see creativity somewhat taking that same path. So that's a lot to unpack, but you address that in your Queen write-up. Yeah, and I, I like that thesis, and it's kind of a pet subject of mine that I don't think a lot of people think about the fact that it's not as simple as Lennon and McCartney come along or Freddie Mercury comes along or Becker and Fagan come along and they just are doing their thing and it's not era specific. It really is era specific, you know, and, and it has a lot to do with the tools that they have in front of them for music making. And so, um, you know, when Queen made Bohemian Rhapsody, I mean, it's only five years after Abbey Road. When, when recording on 16 tracks was sort of an unheard of luxury. And now everybody had 24 track machines. And in some cases we're chaining them together with a, with Simpty and, you know, the, the sky was the limit. Um, Becker, uh, Walter Becker had a great quote um, sometime in the two thousands where he said, you know, if Donald and I had had, Pro Tools back in the day, we'd still be working on our first record. <laughs> you never get done. <laughs> I actually believe that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that popular art does not move independently of technology. It moves chained to it, really. Mm-hmm. 
And I, when I got asked to do that thing by the Library of Congress, they have this registry of, I think it's called the Registry of Significant American Recordings or something. I, never mind the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody is English. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the guy who contacted me from there, I think, knew about my books and, uh, you know, asked me to contribute that. And I thought, well, what can I say about, you know, the number one classic rock streaming song? in the history of Spotify and Apple music that hasn't already been said. And I just thought the technology angle was a, a neat way to go at it. Yeah. And you pointed Very out that it became a hit four separate times, which I know I knew it factually, but I never thought of it. Right. Yeah. It just seems to, you know, there's always more gas in the tank when, when it's time comes, uh, whether it's because of uh, a movie like Wayne's world or the, yeah. or the queen biopic, uh, mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's just time for a new generation to, to turn over that rock and hear all those layers and get excited about it. And then you also wrote the book Asia, uh, or about Asia. What uh, f- We'll link to all the stuff in the show notes, by the way, John, to your point. But tell yeah. us about Asia, and I think you're working on a new book now, but let's start with Asia. Yeah, the, the uh, I'm sure some of your listeners, and I'm sure you guys know about the 33 and a third series, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now in the hundreds of books. And basically the idea is you do a, a thin volume uh, about each album. And, you know, when it first started, they were doing a lot of the obvious candidates like Sgt. Pepper and Led Zeppelin Four and uh, Dark Side of the Moon, you know, all that kind of thing. And at some point, being the nervy little bastard that I am, I cold called the uh, series editor in New York and kind of gave him shit for, for not doing a Steely Dan book. <laughs> and he said, you do it. And he you said, think well, you're so smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was sort of like that. He said, you know, well, why don't you propose one and we'll, we'll see if we like your proposal. So I did. And it, it and they, they accepted it. Um, you know, a lot of it for me had to do with, I just wanted to get in a room with Donald Fagan and talk about, that album and uh, and that took uh way more doing than getting the actual book deal did i i had to go um i had to go through irving azoff's office and i got after this uh assistant there and just i wouldn't let go of his throat until he gave me a donald fagan interview basically i just (laughs) you know every he'd open his email at the office and go oh this guy again yeah (laughs) But anyway, you know, I said, pitch it to Donald. Like, I want to talk about the nuts and bolts of making this record. I want to talk about the sidemen and the chords and the structures and the and the production. And I'm not going to ask any kind of stupid Wikipedia daily newspaper kind of yeah, question. gotcha questions or anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Or, you know, or like, um, well, how did you and Walter meet? Or do you write the yeah. words first or the music first? Or there's yeah. sort of like those kind of. Uh, if you were stuck on a desert island, right, right. ten albums. <laughs> yeah, and so finally he relented, and and the guy, you know, the guy phoned me back and said, "Well, I can hardly believe it, but Donald's going to talk to you." And so I went to his uh, his writing studio, which was, hmm, I probably shouldn't say where, but it's uh, it's on a prominent north-south street in Manhattan on the east side and um, went over to his place. And of course I was, you know, sick with nervousness because he's, he and Walter were reputed to be such difficult interviewees, you know, over the years, but I think they just had, they didn't have any tolerance for people who didn't really 
know what they were up to, you know? Uh, so like Rolling was, Stone, like Rolling Stone. Yeah. <laughs> Famously. Yeah. They invited Rolling Stone out to, to uh, do the Gaucho interview on the day that they were working on the delay setting for um, you got to shake it, baby. Oh that's my all, gosh. That's all they did. Oh. And, they, and the guy sat, <laughs> yeah, the guy sat on the leather couch with his clipboard you know, watching him do that for 12 hours. Oh uh, man. Uh, but anyway, Donald was super nice and funny and, you know, made me a pot of tea and, and um, I was supposed to get an hour with him and we went about two and a half. So I think he enjoyed the conversation. And, Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was. And so it was just great to be able to write kind of what amounts to a 150 page record review of my favorite album. Yeah. Yep. People can find that on spot on uh, Spotify on Amazon and oh yeah, like anywhere yeah. anywhere books are sold, you can get those. Yeah, and I saw you mentioned somewhere that you're working on a new book, right? Uh, well, if you mean the uh, the Mark Jordan one, maybe. Yeah. Um, so Mark, uh, who just got inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, um, deservedly he, so. You know, yeah, and he, you know, I mean, he's written for everybody, Joe Cocker yeah. and buying rate and on and on uh rod stewart of course uh uh, yeah um he wanted he was in his 70s and thought maybe it's time to tell my story but not a lot of people know this but and he doesn't mind me talking about it he's profoundly dyslexic Mm -hmm. yeah he told us yeah yeah which is kind of odd for a for a world prominent uh lyricist to, to be dyslexic, but he, you know, he has sort of a strange uh, process mm-hmm. around lyrics. Um, it, it more often has to do with him singing things and keeping the bits that he likes and then scrawling those down as opposed to a, okay. sort of like as if he's sitting uh, in a comfy chair writing a poem. He doesn't do that. But anyway, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it was, excuse me, going to be easy for him to write his own autobiography and so he enlisted me because he knew i had uh, done some writing and um so i just went up to his cottage and interviewed him for about a week and hung out and then Hmm. went out into the wider music world and tried to talk to everybody i could talk to that had worked with him you know Graydon and foster and lucather and and on and on you know just like it's an army of unbelievable creative people and not not just all creatives either like legendary uh, record company people and and so on so uh that manuscript is now basically finished and we're shopping for a publisher so cool awesome yeah, that's wow. very cool yeah uh yachters such as yourself will find much we'll to find it yeah. dig into in there yeah. Well, I wanted to uh, sort of bring this thing sort of full loop. Earlier when we began, you told told us about sitting at a piano, uh, writing with Jay Graydon, and you mentioned your brass transit stuff. So I want to play a song I just saw you. I think you may have just posted it on Facebook the other day. And on the, the back side, you can tell us maybe a little of the back story of this one. This was uh, Brass Transit, Me in the Snowstorm, and You. Outside the winter is having its way. Slender's dream coming true Someone will soon dig us out But till they do It's just me And the snowstorm and you 
so you wrote that with Jay? Wrote it with Jay. Yeah. At some point when we were collaborating, uh, I think somebody that I wish I had a, more of a handle on this part of the story, but somebody Jay knew got a big Christmas cut with somebody. And he said, you know, Christmas music is one of the few little corners of popular music as it now stands where you can deploy real chords. <laughs> True. You know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so he said, maybe, maybe all our uh, little delicious nights and 11ths and 13ths won't seem <laughs> so, uh, I don't know, dated, uh, off center. Uh, if we're writing a Christmas One, five, song. six, four. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And, and I always like the bag of that, uh, the grading production of the song, um, Teach Me Tonight with Al Jarreau. Did you say I've got a lot to learn? Well, don't think I'm trying not to learn. Send you know, it's got that beautiful uh, kind of swaying 12-8 feel. So we kind of uh, poured it into that mold. And um, yeah, I, I think it came out great. I mean, the brass transit version is just is kind of the horn band version of it. But yeah. I, I really do think it could be cut by anybody looking for a classic sounding Christmas tune. So, Michael Bubbly. Michael, there you go. <laughs> that wouldn't Bubbly. be a bad idea. I don't know when his next Christmas album will be, but well, we've got a, a track already safe. lined up for it. Yep. So, yeah. yeah. Well, one uh, minor correction before we let you go down. Uh, yep. John and I are yacht rockers, not yachters. And the difference is about six hundred thousand dollars in annual income. True. <laughs> <laughs> and we're both yes. musicians, so you know how poor we are. Right. Points yeah. right. Taken. Yeah. yeah, we don't eat most days. Yeah. You know, I I had one. I'm lucky. I only had one really, really slow period in my music career. And uh, I was probably about 40, maybe, and thought, oh, man, it's, I could still go back to law school. <laughs> and, well, you got to be getting close to paying off that Berkeley uh, <laughs> tuition. I mean, I know well, that takes a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, uh, you know, fortunately for me, my Berkeley tuition, the school paid for it, but yeah, that's right. You said uh, scholarship, <laughs> but living in Boston, as you know, Oh, I mean, yeah. at the time, I think it was second to San Francisco for most expensive city in, in America. I mean, it was ahead of New York. Complete with roaches too. In all <laughs> yeah. the apartments. Yeah, I had I ran a very successful mo- uh, roach motel <laughs> under my sink. Yep. Over on I'll the- tell you what, with the positive publicity that Berkeley gets on the show, I should be able to send my kid there for free. Yeah, Jeez. there you go. We are. Yeah. Okay. Jeez, oh, Pete. All right. Well, Don, this was awesome. So glad to meet you in person, and we'll have to have you on again um, next time. You got anything coming out? Hop okay, back well, on. We'll promo it. I'm about six demos into the next Monkey House record, so that's okay. That's All coming right. soon. Well, when that is when that is going to happen, definitely we want to have you on when you're ready to start introducing that to the world. You're on. Thank you so much, guys. Well, our thanks to uh, let me see if I have it right. Bright up, Don, Mister yeah. Donald. Bright up. Okay, I got it. Uh, that was great. You know, it's great these people that you meet, and I hate to say it when I'm right in front of them, but you talk about a buried treasure, this guy. Oh my gosh! Like I, yeah, I didn't know the name. I didn't either, and it's kind of funny that you think about 
you know, when I was at Berkeley, I always thought of the jazz snobs because they knew all this theory, you know, and it was before <laughs> I really learned it all. So I guess now they, you know, probably think I'm a, a snob when I start talking chords and all that. But it's, it is true that once you learn that and you feel that and that becomes part of your DNA, she was talking about that with Jay Graydon, that it's hard to go back and do the other thing, you know? And so yeah. they, they found a Christmas song was a good way to employ all that. And they're right. You know? Yep. Well, uh, I'm reliably informed that at least listener Hal is becoming a bit overwhelmed with your technical theory. So I know. You can know. take it up with him. Well, I'm glad that we avoided saying funny things like uh, monkeying around or don't get into any monkey business. I'm glad we avoided all of that. Well, that's what the lightning round is for. Oh, sorry. Ah, now that we are in safer harbors, um, let's get down to monkey business, shall oh, we? come on now. That's just too much. <laughs> That's really ridiculous. Not really, because my found at sea is from Monkey House, the okay. 2019 album that we talked about Friday. This is my personal favorite Monkey House song, and it's called Welcome to the Rest of the World. Welcome to the rest of the world. You like that, that number? I, oh, I love that. I love that album. I love the, especially because I listened to it today in headphones. And remember when we asked him about recording that stuff and how he gets the band on the floor, as they say, mm-hmm. it feels like it. You can hear the just the natural ambiance around them. It's really good. Yep. I, I think this is one of their brighter songs and i don't mean by that recording style you know crispness but yeah. it's just like it's not as steely danny as some of the other steely danny stuff so i would agree um, with that yeah yeah yep all right um what have you found at sea well my found at sea is something that i know that you've avoided talking about um because i don't know if many people know that you're an author of your second novel i'm also the author of my first novel that's true uh, yes. But it is worth pointing out, uh, The Fatal Flaw is a new um, book that Tom has written, and it is filled with Yachty references. We get Kenny Loggins referenced, we get yes. specific to the storyline, Baby Come Back. So, A, go read the book. B, it should be certified Yachty novel reading. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, there is quite a bit of myself uh, baked into that main yeah. character. But yeah. He loves Yacht Rock, yeah, and... Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. All right, Barry oh, Treasure. I appreciate the plug. That can be found okay. at Amazon.com. There you go. Part of that website. Under okay. your name. Right. Uh, uh, so, Barry Treasure, I sent you this one because um, it, it struck me. First of all, this is Larry Cowton from Strikes Twice. That's probably why I'm saying it struck me. <laughs> but I, it struck me as I didn't realize that he would sing on some of his stuff. I've always assumed it would be a different singer. But Larry is actually credited as singing on this. This is 1981. Definitely falls in the yacht jazz area. Greg Matheson on keyboards. Your buddy Paulino DaCosta yes. on the percussion. And this is Larry Carlton's Ain't Nothing for a Heartache. It seems I found myself a hopeless situation Right in the sweet spot, baby. 
had you not told me, I would have assumed it was some other singer. Like, uh, he's kind of in that Kipner range, mm-hmm. or um, uh, who's the guy that sings for Lee Rittenauer? Eric Tag. Eric Tag. Yeah, he's kind of in that realm. Very well done, though. I like that. Yeah, I was surprised when I went to look it up. I went to look for other personnel, and then it said Larry Carlton vocals. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. All right, what do you got uh, buried at your uh, treasure? Well, it's beginning to look and sound a lot like Christmas. Uh, and yes. as you know, I love my uh, a very yachty Christmas playlist on Spotify. Um, I have a new addition, thanks to today's guest. Yes. So I had no idea that Don Bright up uh, co-wrote All Over the World. Such busy lives now. Yeah, co-written with Neil Donnell, um, Canadian singer who's got some Juno Awards and, as he said, is now the sort of new Pete Cetera in Chicago. Yeah, that was Chicago, by the by. Yep. 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 By the by, of course. By the by. Very nice. All right. Off the map. Off the map. Okay. So this is something uh, that I had no idea about, um, and I can't even remember how I stumbled across it. So you remember the St. Elmo's Fire uh, motion picture soundtrack, correct? Mm, I do. Laid in with David Foster, right? Yeah. So I'm reading from a website called FozFan. So that's obviously, it's a website, fan site for uh, David Foster. Uh, the original soundtrack of the 1985 Brat Pack hit movie St. Elmo's Fire was touted as one of the most successful music scores of David Foster's career. Blah, blah, blah. Peaked at 21. A gem included was Foster's own top five instrumental hit, the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire, which I love. Yeah, I'd totally uh, forgotten about that one. Go ahead. Yep. yep. And then Sean Parr's uh, worldwide number one rock anthem, the St. Elmo's Fire, mm-hmm. the Band in Motion song. Um but there's more on this soundtrack that I had no idea. I would have never gone looking for. But did you know that John Anderson of Yes has a song on there called This Time It Was Really Right? Not until you sent me this ahead of time. I had no <laughs> idea. No. And did you know that there is an Airplay song? I didn't on know this that either. Soundtrack? No idea. Holy smokes. Yes. So uh, it is not Yachty, but it's Airplay, which uh, uh, as many people know. So Airplay is Foster and Jay Graydon, uh, their 1980 milestone album. But this was, uh, he was working on, him being Foster, was working on material for St. Elmo's Fire. He and Graydon decided to resurrect the legendary moniker for a brand new song. And this is called Stressed Out, Wait For It, Parents, (laughs) Close to the Edge, Close Parents. I'm close to the edge Boy, oh boy. You know, that we did our episode on uh, the day the yacht sank. Man, the tones and the sounds used in that, in terms of yachtiness, puts that absolutely sunken down at the Mariana Trench, man. That is so <laughs> post non yachty sounding from airplay. It's hard to believe it's airplay. And, you know, the. It all started when the makers of the Lindrum, which that is Lindrum on there, but when the makers of the Lindrum started making available new chips, sound chips that you could put in to trade out from the original sounds, and the ones that they were putting out were harsh and bright, and they were going for that aggressive sound, and everybody grabbed them, and everybody started using them, and 
everything just started ripping your eardrums apart from there <laughs> forward, man. Well, that's why it's so far off the map, Indeed. if you will. But yeah. P.S. real quick. Okay. Co-written by Steve Kipner, who I just mentioned, mm-hmm. and Peter Beckett of Baby Come Back fame, which you just mentioned. And that lead vocal was Peter Beckett. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. I would All never have picked exists. that out of there. I never no. would have picked his voice. I would have never gone to St. Elmo's Fire soundtrack looking for an Airplay tune that also features <laughs> Kipner and Beckett. So there you go. Okay. Good job, Foz fan. I got to check out this site. I might just spend the whole weekend here. Okay. Uh, off the map for me then, right? Yes, sir. Uh, this one's just been sitting in the lightning list for a while because it caught my attention and I thought it was a, a worthy sound that was close to yacht, but clearly sonically it also has sounds that are of the post-yacht era. Um, and this is 1986. I'm talking about Billy Ocean, the Love Zone album. There's an interesting <laughs> title. <laughs> Hello. Love Zone. Keep anyway, PG 13, please. Yeah, right. Let's play a little of this. Without you. Without you. That's a nice strong hook, but yeah, it's again, it's got that post yacht sound, DX7 all over. DX7, yeah. some yeah. hand claps. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you coming around to Billy Ocean more than you thought you might? Oh, those those two. You know, I'm be, keep being told by John O'Grady that I need to go back and listen to the old stuff, and I just haven't done that. But yep. this Love Zone album and Suddenly album, I love. But the song Suddenly, I still skip. I still skip it. Ah, oh, come on, you got to come around to it. No. All right. All right, well, now you can do the thing. Oh, ahoy, ploy. (laughs) 